0: Today's Power Talk is titled, What's Happening in the Hydrogen Economy. It's a conversation with Ken Dragoon, Director of Hydrogen Development, and Abe Mooney, Renewable Energy Project Development Manager, both from Obsidian Renewables. We discuss the general state of hydrogen technology and applications. We also discuss a specific, massive project, the Obsidian Pacific Northwest Hydrogen Hub. This project, if realized, would include approximately 590 miles of dedicated hydrogen pipeline. Two anchor sites, each producing 175 megatons of hydrogen per day, and thousands of acres of solar development. Power Talk is a series of conversations about the changing electric grid, how you can leverage new technologies to increase your reliability and lower your bills, and how you can safeguard yourself. All right, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of Power Talk. My name is Nate Woods, and I'm coming to this with about 15 years of cat dealer marketing experience. Beside me, as always, is Greg Lambert, who's coming with to this with about 30 years of utility power experience. And today's episode is a little bit different in uh, show preparations. Greg handed me this 20-page technical document that I actually had to expand my vocabulary to understand. So, Greg, let me hand it over to you. Can you introduce the topic and introduce our guests today?
1: Thanks, Nate. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about today's conversation, actually. We are in Lake Oswego, Oregon. And we're sitting here in the Office of Obsidian Renewables, and Obsidian Renewables has uh, submitted an application to the Department of Energy for one of the uh, hydrogen hubs that they're looking to fund. This is an $8 billion program where DOE is looking to get hydrogen infrastructure on the ground in the United States through the funding of, uh, of a couple of uh, hydrogen hubs. Uh, the, the, the number of hubs isn't quite clear, but I think we'll get more into that in a little bit of detail. But the Obsidian Pacific Northwest Hydrogen Hub, it's a joint venture established to integrate renewable energy and clean and green hydrogen infrastructure. It's going to include electrolytic hydrogen production from new purpose-built wind and solar, we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, long duration modular storage, and low cost last mile distribution to industrial, commercial, and agricultural users across, across both Oregon and Washington. Obsidian projects that the hub will begin producing hydrogen in 2026, And should be completed, I think, by about 2032, uh, with uh, hopefully continued expansion thereafter. Uh, Construction and management of the hub uh, and and the projects it enables to create will will create more than 10,000 construction jobs and over 500 permanent jobs. Uh, Many of these jobs will be in disadvantaged census tracts across northeastern Oregon and central and eastern Washington. We have two individuals with us today who are, I think, doing nothing but working on the hub right now. Uh, We have Ken, Ken Dragoon and Ken actually uh, been doing this for 30 plus years uh, in in the energy space, founded the Renewable Hydrogen Alliance, and uh, has spent time with BPA, Pacific Corp, Renewable Northwest, and some independent consulting. He joined Obsidian in January of 2021 as our Director of Hydrogen Development. He's got a master's in physics from the University of New Hampshire, and he is indeed a wildcat. Uh, Abraham Mooney is with us as well. And Abraham's doing a lot of really interesting work on this uh, with regards to uh, last mile kind of work and dealing with end users and, you know, who are going to be the ultimate customers for this uh, hydrogen. Uh, Abraham spent nine years at TriMet Transit Agency as a system project manager for Capital Projects. He's got deep, deep EPC experience. B.S. in mechanical engineering and an M.S. in ecological engineering from Oregon State. And he is indeed a beaver. So we've got a wildcat and a beaver with us today. So uh, this is going to be a really, really interesting conversation. I think what we'd like to do, guys, is uh, turn it over to you at this point and let you give us an overview and tell tell our listeners uh, what's happening with this massive, uh, you know, uh, potentially $10 billion project. Um, that you're working on in uh, in the Pacific Northwest here to bring hydrogen and the hydrogen economy to uh, Oregon and Washington. Uh, Thanks, Greg. This is Ken. Um,
2: We started this concept uh, months before the Department of Energy announced money for hydrogen hubs. Uh, We had our website up in November of 2021. and um, the bill with the eight billion dollars didn't come out till three or four months later actually I was hired I I had started the renewable hydrogen alliance which is a trade association to promote using renewable electricity to make hydrogen and derivative fuels I saw that as absolutely necessary to getting to decarbonization goals and uh, I I saw that there was very little going on in the region, very little recognition of the importance of hydrogen or that it was coming. But I had written a paper on it for the local gas distribution company, i had been to Europe and seen what was going on there, uh, thought that it was inevitable to come here and started the Renewable Hydrogen Alliance. David Brown, the um, uh, CEO, owner of Obsidian Renewables, um, became a member of that organization, sort of drank the Kool-Aid I was vending, <laughs> hired me away um, to um, come up with, you know, the goods. All right, if hydrogen is coming, what's a commercially viable project? And it took us six, seven, eight months to come up with the concept that we ultimately did come up with that, that you're seeing in the concept paper, uh, the hydrogen hub. Concept has evolved a bit over time. It's not exactly in the 20-page document <laughs> concept paper. Um, it's close, but uh, we've learned a lot. We continue to learn a lot. It's a it's a new area for lots of folks, including me. Um, and uh, so so um, yeah, it's very exciting. The do the um, um, IIJA. Uh, act that was passed with the $8 billion for hydrogen hubs came out and of course we we submitted a concept paper to the Department of Energy to be in competition for some of that money and um, the first step in the process is this concept paper that we submitted in November we got a green light from DOE to continue in that process along with 32 other hydrogen hub applications uh, around the
0: United States. How, how big of a step is that getting the green light does, does everyone who applies get the green light? No. <laughs> uh, we
2: actually thought it would be uh, even fewer than 33 uh, that they got it, but they, they got about a hundred applications, I understand. And
1: yeah, I've got some metrics here on that real quick. They, they, they received uh, probably over hundred applications, we don't know for sure. What we do know is that when they receive an application, an application has to be deemed complete. Hmm. And there were 79 applications that were deemed complete in that process, and 33 uh, inclusive of the Obsidian uh, Hydrogen Hub were, uh, were um, contacted and encouraged to submit full applications. I want to back up for just a second, Ken, and Obsidian Renewables. kind of new in the hydrogen space. I think Obsidian was known for developing and building some of the largest solar projects in the Pacific Northwest. Uh,
2: Yeah, I would say most folks in the U.S. are new at hydrogen. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, Obsidian Renewables is a private development company doing large-scale, well, utility-scale solar, megawatt-scale solar, uh, pioneered utility-scale solar in the Northwest, uh, has a handful of projects in Oregon. Our latest project uh, in late stages of development is a 400 megawatt solar project in Lake County in South Central Oregon. Uh, very excited about that project and um, uh, David saw that the field of utility scale solar development was getting crowded with very large companies and we're not a very large company um, with Incredibly deep pockets, were uh, kind of a, a wildcatter, if you will, <laughs> uh, in a sense. And and David saw hydrogen as the next thing he wanted
1: to, to pioneer, and that's that's how that started. Okay, so for, for our listeners, um, I'm going to ask a rhetorical question they already know the answer to, but I think our listeners, interested. So what what is the confluence between that large scale solar and, and, and the hydrogen hub? How, how how do they how do they work together? What you know
2: yeah there is there is a connection. Uh, when we started thinking about hydrogen, David was laser focused on how do you get the lowest cost hydrogen. Um, and in order to do that, he determined correctly
1: Oops. Uh,
2: that uh, David determined that you would need to get wind and solar, Kind of behind the meter, meaning not on the high voltage transmission grid, because of the time and expense it takes to connect anything to the grid out here in the northwest. And I understand much of the country getting access to transmission services is is getting increasingly difficult, and here it's become almost impossible. So um, we get the wind and solar directly to the electrolyzer. Means that the electrolyzer has to be geographically near. Those resources, so
0: that determined where we were gonna, where we were gonna put these things. So my my layman's understanding is that the the wind and solar generates the original electricity, then the electrolyzer transforms water into oxygen and hydrogen. Uh, maybe we do something with the oxygen and sometime down the road, but then the the hydrogen generated is the fuel.
2: Right, right. So I guess the the original question is, what does this have to do with solar? So Solar is a major input in order to make hydrogen. Well, hydrogen production isn't new in the country. There's 10 million tons a year being produced and has been produced for a long time. But almost all of it comes from um, uh, natural gas. Some abroad comes from coal. But you process the natural gas to pull the hydrogen out of it. We're not going to do that. We're trying to decarbonize the uses of hydrogen and production of hydrogen. And that means using renewable electricity, wind, solar, hydro, uh, low carbon sources of electricity, you can put the electricity through water, the H2O splits up into H2 and O, uh, hydrogen and oxygen. We collect the hydrogen, and then it is very anxious to recombine with oxygen. (laughs) And that's where you can get energy back. most of the hydrogen that's produced today is not used for, for um, fuel directly. Uh, the biggest use is in uh, refining oil into gasoline and diesel. Um, and the second biggest use is in making um, ammonia, nitrogen fertilizers with ammonia. And so all of the nitrogen fertilizers today are, um, other than the organic ones, Come from natural gas, and so that's a major. That was a major focus of our concept papers, ma- making ammonia for
0: fertilizer. Okay, so expanding uh, from carbon-free electricity and power to even uh, carbon-free industrial inputs, I, I yes. guess is what you'd call it, or yeah.
2: agricultural. But the plan is so to get the lowest cost, you need to site the electrolyzer, the device that splits water with electricity near where the wind and solar are, um, and then you also need large scale, and that's what the ammonia uh, um, brings to the, to the table. Um, uh, a medium-sized ammonia facility would take uh, a, a very large electrolyzer on the, on the order of 500 megawatts, which is kind of unprecedented now,
0: but the industry is moving there. So you, you mentioned scale, and that, that's part of where my vocabulary had to get larger. I think uh, I calculated it into uh, into terajoules uh, oh my gosh. storage. Don't how, do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> how how big of a, of a a project is this, and what does it mean for the people who uh, who live and work around where that project's going to be? We're
2: very focused on community benefits, and the um, the money that the government put up is. Um, uh, the competition I think 20 or 25% of the scoring for the application is based on community benefits um, equity and social justice um, um, helping disadvantaged communities and there are tax breaks in the um, the Inflation Reduction Act has a large production tax credit for making um, low carbon hydrogen and that's also um, some of those benefits are, are also predicated on on helping local communities. So um, there are going to be a lot of construction jobs. The we are committed to union labor, which is also incented by the um, by uh, the Biden administration's uh, tax incentives. Um, and uh, we've signed a memorandum of understanding saying that we will ent- enter into. Um, project labor agreements with with local unions. So, um, we also intend to. Uh, there are also incentives, well, requirements in the act for um, uh, apprenticeship programs and mm-hmm. uh, training programs, and where apprenticeship is. Wonderful. We, we need more of that in the world. Yeah, well, we're, we're worki- working on it. <laughs> we're working on it. Uh, Obsidian has a, a, a pretty good history, I think, of uh, ensuring benefits to local communities. We know that your project's just not going forward unless the local communities are, um, uh, are benefited by it, see a benefit in it for them. Um, you know, the number of jobs, ongoing jobs for... Solar projects and wind projects are significant, but but they're not huge. The but the project itself is going to take an awful lot
1: of construction jobs. Let let, let me let us uh, let, back up a little bit and let's 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 talk about the project. So let let's start at these large solar fields or or, or wind farms that we're talking about, and from the production there, how how many major um you know. So if we start at the beginning, we've got a large solar field, a couple of large wind fields. How many of those are we looking at? And then what, take us through the process. The, the We produce electrolytic hydrogen at X number of locations. Please tell us. And then once that hydrogen goes into a pipe, where does it go? And then let's get that hydrogen over to Abe a little bit so we can yeah. talk about <laughs> um, how it's going to get used by end users.
2: So we've identified two kind of centers of hi- large-scale hydrogen production and consumption. Okay. Um, and a pipeline between them. So the two um, centers are one in central Washington. uh, We're aiming for the Port of Moses Lake and environs. And the other one uh, we're aiming for is um, the um, Numatilla Depot, former chemical weapons depot in northeastern Oregon that's um, imminently to be transferred into civilian hands. Both of those places have large tracts of land, thousands of acres that are potentially solar developable projects or um, acres. Um, The Northeast Oregon location uh, has some of the best wind resources in the region surrounding it. We're hoping to tie into some of those. There's new developments that can't get on the grid that are reaching out to us and saying, hey, you know, We have this great project but we can't get on the grid maybe you guys would take this this energy so those those are the the two main projects um we're going to be making hydrogen from variable renewable resources which means the production is not going to be at a constant level Um, off takers of hydrogen for example an ammonia production facility is going to want a constant reliable stream of hydrogen What that means is we need fairly large quantities of hydrogen storage, and that's what we're planning uh, to store hydrogen in the lowest cost way we can, given the geology (laughs) that we have. The lowest cost way to store hydrogen is in underground um, salt dome, well, salt caverns that you can make by hollowing out salt dome formations. We don't have any in the Northwest. Um, they're building one in Delta, Utah. It's very yep. exciting. Huge, lowest cost way of storing masses of energy, um, other than new hydro, which doesn't really exist, is in these underground storage. We don't we don't have that, so we're looking at gaseous storage, in either tanks or pipes underground, and we are aiming at about two weeks of production capacity being able to be stored average. Um, production being stored as a gas underground, um, so um, we're all, we're looking at other uses of hydrogen, higher value uses essentially, but smaller quantities. So in order to get the the cost down, we have to have scale very high. Um, Once we get that large scale and low price, then a lot of other things open up, and there are higher value uses, transportation being a a really significant one that is, um, you know, quantities now are close to zero, Uh, so that's something we see as the future growth for this project, but the pipeline uh, is the lowest cost way of transporting hydrogen, and we're uh, hoping to get it to data centers, hospitals, other sensitive loads that need, that have backup generation. Those backup generators are mostly diesel engines now, and we're hoping to supply them with hydrogen to, to clean up that. A lot of these companies have internal policies for getting off fossil fuels, and this is a way to um, to help them do that. So we're we're hoping to attract the data centers. They're they're not quite ready to jump in yet. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they're experimenting. Uh, they're experimenting with hydrogen and whether it's a fuel cell or a genset. We don't or a turbine. Even we we don't really know. I don't think the industry has decided yet. But hydrogen will be a good fuel for doing that.
1: In fact, uh, Caterpillar is involved in a DOE project with Microsoft uh, testing a fuel cell at a data center three megawatt demonstration project so obviously we have, we keenly have our eyes on that since we're we have such a big footprint in the data center space and as our customers needs and technologies are changing obviously we want to be able to lead the way with the, with the responsive solutions another piece of this um is, is the is the power generation piece and uh, you know ken we we've ran into each other a couple conferences and stuff like this and <laughs> there's that segment out there that says oh we don't waste. You know, hydrogen on, on power generation, yeah, we really want to use it to decarbonize, decarbonize the industrial sector. But there's tremendous interest in the power generation sector. And one of the things that Obsidian has done, which I, I think is just brilliant, is they first created a steering committee. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've had the pleasure of participating on that steering committee. We've been going out for about a year now. And... I really look forward to those meetings because they're so interesting. You learn something. <laughs> I mean, there's a manufacturer of a technology that gives a presentation every meeting, and they, they update us on the projects. So we learned a lot. But one of the offshoots of this is uh, you guys have reached out to the utilities of the Pacific Northwest and created this utility user group um, to help them with decarbonization. And and here, here's where this is going. I mean, if you look at what's happening, like, in Oregon right now, Oregon's requiring utilities to reduce emissions by 80 percent, from their baseline by 2030, 90% by 2035 and 100% by 2040, where Washington wants to be greenhouse gas neutral by 2030. And uh, looking at that as a utility planner looks for that, as we have more and more renewables on the system, more wind and more solar, we have that more, uh, more variability, especially in, in the evening um that we need to be able to ramp and the best way to ramp right now is those gas turbines. Yeah. And so there's a realization that we're not gonna get rid of gas turbines anytime soon. So there's a huge interest in repowering those gas turbines and fuel switching with, with hydrogen fuels. And you know, we we've had meetings and discussions about where all the manufacturers are and what the challenges are with regards to being able to take greater and greater quantities of hydrogen. But but that's a, that's a big piece of this as well, and maybe our, I think our listeners may have some interest in in, in that. And um, was was that your uh, um, lead uh, um, on oh. <laughs> the toys, or is that something that that came well, across? It, it,
2: interestingly enough, our concept paper doesn't really talk about hydrogen for for uh, gas turbines, frankly. Right we wanted to stay away from working with utilities because they tend to work very slowly are difficult to work with um and so we didn't have them in there now we realized in the process of this that there is a huge amount of interest and we established um, along with our steering committee we established this hydrogen combustors working group. And every utility in the Northwest that we invited uh, eagerly said and immediately said, yes, I want to be on that. And we've had um, equipment manufacturers come in and and talk, and you were one of them, uh, come in and talk to us about um, getting to 100% hydrogen capable generators. So this is an opportunity that is somewhat taking over for the uh, ammonia print manufacturers. Um, the ammonia manufacturers are few in number and in high demand. So all of these 33 hydrogen hubs are talking to a very small number of ammonia manufacturers, and it's hard, hard to get their attention. But the utilities and independent power producers with gas turbines are kind of jumping out of the woodwork to talk to us about hydrogen. So um, it's controversial with some folks because um, the engineers will quickly point out that the energy efficiency of taking renewable electricity and making it into hydrogen and making it back into electricity is only around 30%. So 70% of the energy in the renewables is lost. and and they say well that just means if if you're going to do that you're going to need three times as much renewables and, and that's ridiculous you don't want to do that um we've discussed other uh forms of storage that that don't hit 30 so no well before we get there let me let me <laughs> poke a hole in, in this balloon Um, It's correct and incorrect. We're not gonna take the gas turbine uh, generation we have today and simply replace it, replace the natural gas with hydrogen. We've got, the the hydrogen costs a lot more than the natural gas does, um, in large part because of the efficiencies, uh, uh, losses. Uh, We absolutely need to build renewables as much as we can to serve load uh, to displace those turbines, and I hope that one day the utilities will allow renewables to deliver directly to the fossil units that already have transmission and displace them directly, and that's not happening today, uh, to make better use of existing transmission.
1: Um, we're but, start, by, the, by the way, just to decide on that, because I, I agree, you're spot on, we're starting to see that in California uh, with the co-location of battery energy storage at existing gas turbine plants to be able to utilize that transmission deliverability capacity at those gas turbine plants uh, by sucking up excesses of renewable energy during times of high production and then having the battery first in the call before the gas turbine because what's going to happen is as we build more and more renewables, uh, we have excesses like high peaks like March, April, we have excesses of solar and hydrogen allows us to essentially bottle that renewable energy, and, yeah, and, and utilize it when we need it. California last year, if you look at the what what they what they call curtailments, uh, when energy is produced and they can't use it, uh, the the number of curtailments in California are going up like almost exponentially. So it's it's climbing with uh, with the amount of renewables we use. And one part, part of the challenge is, is oh, okay, the, well, the technology is thirty percent right now, but Oh boy, you know, it's better to losing it all. Yeah. The yeah.
2: comparison is not to, you know, a, a, a high-efficient natural gas turbine. The comparison is to curtailed um, wind and solar, potentially, and also to uh, renewables that can't get on the grid at all because the, the transmission simply isn't there. So um, you know, thirty percent looks bad compared to sixty or seventy percent, but it's an awful lot better than zero.
1: Exactly, Abe. I want to I want to pass the microphone to you a little bit. Uh, You're relatively new in this. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you came over from uh, from really public works and those types of projects, and uh, you have been since you came into the scene and 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 started with Obsidian. I think fearless would be an understatement. I mean, I think you've <laughs> you've spoke to everybody out there and every potential hydrogen user, and uh, you know we've had some great conversations. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know starting out and you know some of the coal calling, some of the people you've talked to, and you know what you have found and what you think some of the uh, prime uh, off takers are going to be from the uh, from the from this hydrogen hub once it once it's up and operating
3: sure good morning everyone nice to be on the podcast today um it's about a year ago i started with obsidian Uh, i came from the transit agency here in portland uh, TriMet. so transportation is sort of my uh my my favorite subject when it comes to hydrogen um we we eventually we think this hydrogen hub will will provide most uh hydrogen just for transportation but but uh, here in oregon at least uh, transportation is probably not the first uh, early adopter, um, but I've, I've learned a lot uh, here in in the year I've been here. Um, I feel like the the most important part of this conversation for in uh, concerning hydrogen is renewable energy storage, which of course we've just been talking about. Um, but uh, but you know you, you mentioned uh, batteries uh, approximate to gas plants, I think in California, so that that touches on on energy storage. But that's going to be probably four hours or, or maybe six hours of storage. With hydrogen, we can get days or or weeks or or even seasons worth of, of renewable energy storage, which is just well, it's it's a huge number. it's it's exactly where we need to be eventually. it's it's uh, this project that we mentioned in Delta Utah um, approaches that 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 weeks of storage that we need. Um, but my message that I like to get out there is it doesn't have to be just Delta Utah. It's not just, uh, salt domes that can can give you cheap uh, bulk storage uh, we can do it uh, we can do it in Oregon we can do it in Washington we can do it without uh, specific ge- geology or, or, or um, you know um, spent uh, gas um, wells are sometimes used for storage uh, at Obsidian uh, we've done a lot of thinking about uh, storage and uh, we've got a couple of, of great ideas one of which is, is storage under the solar field itself mm-hmm. so we take a you know, hundreds of acres of, of solar panels and we bury pipes underneath them. We call it a manifold. Uh, for for example, we think we can get 250 tons of hydrogen under uh, 150 acres. Um, the Delta Utah project is in the 1,000 or maybe 2,000 tons realm, uh, so we're, we're approaching that. Um, so, co-location with solar and hydrogen storage is a pretty exciting concept for, for again, this, this big picture concept of, of renewable energy storage. Um, but that's not the only one. The pipeline itself, uh, really, I, I think, part of the the birth of this project uh, two years ago of the big pipeline uh, was storage. You know, of course, it's it's transmission and, and distribution of, of energy, but it's, but it's storage also. So, I think from the very beginning, uh, Obsidian has been looking at, at hydrogen storage, um, in in different and innovative ways, which I think is really exciting.
1: Yeah, that's that's been that's been uh, you know a, a common uh, a given uh, accepted in the energy business for a long time is that you know some of the best storage available is gas in a pipe or or fuel in a tank, mm-hmm. and you know that's a lot of the thinking behind this. Um, on the smaller distributed scale, at the end user. Mm-hmm. So to speak, uh, we we did a podcast not too long ago with uh, with GK and Hydrogen, who has a metal hydride storage solution where you're yeah. storing 250 kilograms in a uh, in a 20 foot container. Mm-hmm. So you know a lot of work is going into storage, and you guys are looking at it at one of the grandest scales that I've seen, which is which is really really exciting because that that's what it's going to take. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned before, Ken, that um, you guys started this—you know—this journey for you. Anyway, God, I, I have the pleasure of knowing David and and uh, and calling him a friend. I, th- I think we developed a friendship, and he's absolutely brilliant, and he, he's he's a big thinker, and he's one of these people who does does big things. And uh, you said you've been on this hydrogen journey for you know a couple of years now. I think he's probably been on it a little longer in his mind, anyway, but. You said you started this about three months or so before the uh, the IAJA came out. And um, that was the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, which created the $8 billion pool of finance for these hydrogen hubs. Subsequent to that was the IRA, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, uh, where in that act, they actually, uh, you know, these uh, these government programs do a lot of things wrong, but they got something really right in this. Especially for a guy that's colorblind, they eliminated <laughs> all these different colors of hydrogen, and they put an incentive in there for hydrogen production based on based on carbon carbon uh, uh, intensity. So with the uh, with the um, subsidy for, for the renewable hydrogen you guys are producing up to three dollars a kilogram. Based on the uh, carbon intensity, how has that affected the overall economic? That's that, I would think it's been a big boost for you. Uh, it's
2: bigger. It's way bigger than the eight billion dollars. The uh, the IIJA with the eight billion dollars and the competition for that money, which is you know, what everybody's talking about and everyone's excited about and Abe and I and the rest of Obsidian is putting in long hours to, put, to prepare the, the formal application, which is, is due early April. Um, that's where the focus is, but uh, it's really the Inflation Reduction Act's $3 per kilogram production tax credit, which um, makes the difference. In, in other words, our project is moving forward with or without the $8 billion um, our share, if there was one of that $8 billion. We asked for $700 million, which is less than, well less than 10%, seven or 8% of the infrastructure investment that we're anticipating. It really is that production tax credit that makes this possible. Without that production tax credit, this might not have happened, it might um, have happened uh, I, I, we, will, we will be moving forward e- we would be moving forward even probably without the $3 per kilogram but uh, in a much smaller nichier market. Um, one of the things that's driving this are the figures you read about the utilities needing to decarbonize. So that's why they're all of a sudden very interested in hydrogen for their gas turbines. Uh, the gas turbines in the region are actually running harder than now than a few years ago, uh, likely due to the success uh, in turning off coal plants in the region. Mm-hmm. Coal plants are coming down, but the renewables are not being built fast enough. And so th- this is a big problem, and hydrogen is not the solution to that. We, it, it helps, it can help, right um we have some ideas for producing um, hydrogen on the west side where the resources don't exist which um, is pretty interesting using making more efficient use of existing transmission um, but it's it, the tax credit really opens things up to a lot of development that couldn't have gone forward otherwise.
1: You just said a very Oregon-centric term, the, the West Side, for, for our I'm listeners. I'm sorry, yeah. Please define the West Side, because for our guys from the East Coast, the West Side is, is like west where side, the Trumpet yeah. Museum is. <laughs> so, help me out a little bit of the West Side.
2: Sure, so the Northwest um, is sort of bifurcated by a mountain range, the Cascades. Um, many people might have heard of Mount St. Helens that erupted in 1980. The population centers are west of the mountains, The weather actually comes from um, the west, hits those mountains, and dumps lots of rain. So these population centers are in the green, wet side of the state on the west side, where most of the people live, and then the clouds are dry of moisture when they go over, after they go over the Cascades, and the east side is where the wind and the solar
1: So essentially, for for, for our listeners to to put this in very, very layman's terms, um, the resources that we're going to depend on to decarbonize our energy sector are on the wrong side of the hill, (laughs) if you will, from the population center. And part of the huge challenge uh, we have here in the Pacific Northwest is to be able to move those resources from the east side to the west side across the Cascades and it's been it's challenging to do with transmission transmission wires yeah. very challenging to do and that's another beauty of this project it helps solve that lifelong problem because it's we can move energy in, in a pipeline um, as opposed to having to build uh, transmission uh, through uh, through some very very challenging areas
2: the, the resources being separate from the people is is not just a northwest thing um, I was at a conference where a guy put up a map of where the people live, a demographic map of population uh, density, and put up another wind map, wind, wind resource map, and he said they look like the same map. People do not like to live where the wind
1: is. <laughs> windy desert, that's not uh, inviting. If,
2: if there are people there, it's there's exfoliate.
1: probably not well, a wind. Windy desert's very exfoliating. Yeah? yeah. <laughs> Sandblasting. I grew up in New Mexico, I'm aware. Here you go.
0: So you mentioned a uh, $3 tax credit per kilogram of the hydrogen. How big of a piece of the cost? Like, like what what is a kilogram of hydrogen on the street yeah. versus uh, this tax credit? So
2: a kilogram of hydrogen has the energy content of about a gallon of gasoline. And in transportation applications, it'll actually drive you twice as far as a gallon of gasoline because the fuel cell engines are about twice as efficient. Hmm. Um, so um, you know, it's like driving up to the pump and getting a almost a five dollar a gallon discount on on the energy going into your tank. So it's a it's a big deal, and we that's um, huge. The production cost of hydrogen, you know, if we do behind the meter and all, is is probably around four or five dollars, and so you take three dollars off of that, and you've got some pretty cheap hydrogen. For transportation, it's, it's really great. Um, but it's still... Exp- I mean, if you compare the um, cost per BTU of gasoline to natural gas, natural gas is just really cheap. So even if we're beating gasoline, we're, we're still... Barely competitive with natural gas. Natural gas, historically, is a very low-cost fuel. Historically. Recent history. Because go back far enough, it was quite an expensive
1: fuel. Yep. And then it was historically very, very cheap. And now... I think people in the Pacific Northwest of California would argue that it's not really very cheap right now as they're yeah. opening up their heating bills saying, wow, <laughs> natural gas is about exactly. 400% more this year than it was last year. And that's there's a number of issues yeah. that's beyond the scope of this conversation. But the point of the fact is, getting back to the uh, investment tax credit, is it really simplified the discussion about hydrogen and how you categorize hydrogen before they had a carbon uh, intensity-based ITC, and I think there's four different, four different levels of uh, of subsidy of, of investment yeah. tax credit based on the carbon intensity. Uh, before that, it was it was it was a rainbow. There was there was there was uh, gray hydrogen, which is green uh, hydrogen, green hydrogen, pink hydrogen, which was from nuclear, and you know brown hydrogen, which was from coal, and all, all that kind of stuff. And it just got very very confusing. So th- this really. Um, is I, I think creates a lot of really good behavior and, and a lot of uh, project-driven economics, which I I, uh, yeah. I commend the people who put it together. They really went out there and got experts from the industry to really structure how are we going to create the investment required to to build out hydrogen infra- infrastructure. And it's exciting. I think we are at the... This is the dawn of a new era. You know, some of us have been around the energy business a long time and... Uh, I, I was talking to uh, you know a, a COO of a, a very prominent energy storage company last night at dinner, and we were in agreement. We started our careers together, you know, at, at General Electric back in the day. And the the level of change and the acceleration of change we're seeing right now is like nothing we've ever seen before. And, and, and it is a very exciting time. It is. Going back to uh, some more of the end, end users, uh, Abe, we, we talked about we talked about power plants a little bit. We talked about the transportation sector, and when we talk about the transportation sector, uh, is that more long haul or, or, or short haul? I, I personally, I, I would think it's more long haul. But you've done a lot more investigating in this area, and what, what are people thinking in the transportation sector?
3: The long haul does get the focus, that's where, you know, that kind of is the obvious choice because you can have bigger tanks and, and, uh, and, and you're, not, you're probably not going to want to have more batteries, right, so if, if you wanted to frame this as an either-or, which we, we, we won't, but, but hydrogen does work well for the long haul, but in terms of our hub and the way we're thinking about it, we actually see it starting out with some of the shorter like box trucks, you know, think, think of these Amazon vans, for example. And the reason we say that is because these warehouses, uh, these, uh, what do they call them, distribution warehouses? Um, fulfillment centers. Fulfillment centers, thank yes. you, yes. <laughs> um, they already have hydrogen, many of them do, because they're using it in their fork trucks to move boxes around, right? This is, uh, this is the, the fuel of choice inside of, of, of warehouses because, of course, they, they don't want to use propane like they used to because it's, it's inside of a, a warehouse. So they already use hydrogen, there's 10,000 plus forklifts on the road, if we if we if we want to say, uh, but but in in warehouses, so considering that just moving outside the warehouse to to ref to fuel a, a, a distribution van or a, that's a pretty small step to take. Plus, you can think of that that warehouse as a sort of a hub. So they they go out during the day deliver their boxes, and they come right back to that same fueling station. So you can imagine a a, a mini hub, if you will, uh, right there at the warehouse that just has to use one fueling station it doesn't require this, this big infrastructure that the long haul requires so yeah i think we get there to long haul and, and you know if, if nicola has any say in it we get there sooner rather than later but in terms of our our focus and the way we think about it we, we see it starting at the distribution warehouse and then eventually maybe sort of the, the last step after
0: the van comes the long haul
1: okay
0: i guess yeah. by that point you'd have a, like a network of these distribution centers that are already set up to dispense the hydrogen yeah
3: Yeah, and and we think we we have some of these warehouses uh, in the area of our of our pipeline, so we we can see ourselves selling hydrogen to them uh, in the near future. Um, We think there's a a number of users, uh, including transportation, that could adopt pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, we're seeing you know we're seeing more and more hydrogen infrastructure starting to pop up. You know, the hydrogen highway, so to speak, up and down I Mm -hmm. five along the entire coast. Uh, I know. Right now, I think two years ago, I didn't know a single person with a hydrogen vehicle. I think I know about a half a dozen people right now who have the uh, Toyota Mirai's. Yeah. Uh, if you've never seen a Toyota Mirai, check it out. It's the Lexus LS platform. They're they're incredible. Just an absolutely beautiful car. and. Um, you know they're they're very quiet, almost very like an quiet. electric car. Yeah, and, but much more range, uh, much more range uh, than than, than EV. So really, really exciting what's happening there.
3: Well, and I always like to point out in the transportation space that a hydrogen vehicle is an electric vehicle. I mean, maybe that's obvious, but but it, if it isn't, it, it needs to be. Right? It has an electric motor, even has a battery, just a little smaller than a, than a regular right. EV. It has that fuel cell to give the battery more range, right? You're, you're, you're storing and carrying uh, carrying your energy as hydrogen, and part of why I bring this up is is uh, getting back to that that Amazon delivery van. They're going to be electric very soon, but the step from electric to hydrogen electric is a really small step. Actually, it's the same van. In fact, I mentioned those fork trucks earlier. Those forklifts, every one of them in the warehouse, at least uh, the plug power ones uh, across the U. S. It started out life as an electric forklift, and they took a out battery forklift. A battery forklift, and they took out some of the batteries, and they put they put in a fuel cell box instead. Like that's just the way they do business. So that conversion is is very minor, and it it makes the step from electric to hydrogen electric. Really small, and, and all of the the buzz and the excitement about electric vehicles just carries right to hydrogen electric vehicles, which I think is pretty cool.
2: So there's advantages to hydrogen vehicles over battery vehicles in in some applications, and people point out that well, batteries are far more efficient um, than the hydrogen cycle of making the hydrogen and um, turning it back into electricity to to run the car, but um, the battery vehicles have shorter range and longer recharge times. So that's why these forklifts have gone from battery versions to hydrogen because you need a lot more battery ones. Many of them at any one moment are sitting out being recharged. Mm -hmm. And so you need more floor space, you need more vehicles. Um, So any application where you've got vehicles in constant motion, Tends to be more economic to go to hydrogen vehicles. So, bus fleets um, will, transit fleets will eventually probably find themselves doing hydrogen, irrespective of whether they start out with batteries or not. Batteries are great on shorter routes that don't run all the time. I've I've heard heard
0: of uh, school buses would be perfect for batteries because they run that short route, then they're stationary during the school day. Absolutely.
2: Um, for, for uh, hydrogen is very energy dense by weight um, and batteries are not so it just takes a lot of weight to get range for the battery and so these cars or trucks that have a four or five hundred mile range are um, carrying huge amounts of weight all the time to have that range and their payload Capability goes down pretty drastically. What the hydrogen um, has doesn't have such a weight penalty. um, Its problem is volume; (laughs) it takes a lot of room uh, to to store hydrogen. um, So that's a challenge, and it's addressed either by compressing the hydrogen a great deal or turning it into a liquid. But anyway, uh, the Mirai is a a great vehicle with I don't know 400 mile range or something like that. Mm Um uh, with, you know, I it, it has I, it has two tanks in it about the size of so it probably has about ten gallons worth, or um, 15, something like fifteen gallons worth of hydrogen storage on board.
0: And there is um, one controversial word that I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up, mm-hmm. um, which is pipeline. Mm-hmm. So when I think of the hydrogen pipelines, I think of two concerns. One of them is environmental. Um, Sometimes these pipelines have negative environmental impacts, and the other one is safety. If we're talking about storing um, hydrogen in this, what what would you say to people who have these concerns? Um, Yeah, what would you say to people who have concerns around safety and environmental issues? Well,
2: um, hydrogen has some advantages, so we're lots of things that get transported in pipes it's not toxic so if it escapes you're not gonna make anybody sick from it it's not going to leak into streams and sicken the fish it's lighter than air Um, it's trying to get the heck away from wherever it's it's coming out now it is quite flammable um, like natural gas but it's even easier to set off than natural gas but it is rising, uh, so that's that's a big advantage. Um, Does natural gas rise? No. Oh, Okay. May, maybe a little bit, but not like hydrogen. not as
1: buoyant as hydrogen. Yeah, natural gas will tend to create more of a ground level cloud. No, that's a nightmare. So, so sorry, yeah. sorry, please
2: continue. Um, so there are challenges with it, and people always bring up the Hindenburg, and I say, well, we too we, soon. <laughs> yeah, we make <laughs> we make and use ten million tons of hydrogen. Uh, a year right now and you know it i think it says something that you have to go back almost 100 years to point to an actual significant accident and i, I think we learned not to put a hydrogen filled balloon in the into lightning storms painted with flammable paint (laughs) we're not going to do that (laughs) we've learned not to do that how far we've come (laughs) um there will be you know some leakage just because pipes leak um i was at a conference where they were talking about some of the california fueling stations and they had problems with leakage and i'm like oh my god you know this is 10,000 psi stuff it sounded sort of catastrophic, and I was with an engineer, and he said, well, these leaks, are they big enough to actually um, ignite? Oh, no, they're tiny little <laughs> bubbles that ooze out. Well,
1: <laughs> yeah. there are some challenges in, in, in this area, uh, some differences. First of all, uh, a, lot of, a lot of discussion about how much of the existing natural gas infrastructure can we use for hydrogen going forward what's it going to take can we reline those pipes the hydrogen molecules smaller you know there's impingement issues those those types of things but i find one of the things that's really challenging with hydrogen in the space from a safety perspective and i'm raising a problem here not a solution so to speak but um, natural gas in a pipeline uh, we, we add sulfur to the yeah. natural gas so people can smell it natural gas has no smell hmm. you can't see it it has no smell whatsoever that we adhere sulfur, sulfur to it, so people smell rotten eggs. They know to call Portland General Electric because there's a gas leak, yeah. or whoever we call for for a gas leak. But um, hydrogen, the molecule is so small, we haven't found anything to adhere to it yet. Hydrogen is yeah. it, it, it odorless. You know, it has no smell, and we can't really now. There are some hydrogen t- detection systems that we can use. So, from you know, in an in industrial hy- hy- hygiene perspective, we know if there's hydrogen around us uh, by, by monitoring it. But uh, that's, that's one of the challenges. Any, anything going on in that area from, from a pipeline um, perspective? The,
2: the detectors are very important. Right. Uh, and when I mentioned these leaks at the um, hydrogen fueling stations that are really little um, head-of-a-pin-sized um, bubbles oozing out, those are detected. By, hmm. by these stations, so there's some very sensitive hydrogen detection. But you, but you're right. Um, as for natural gas, we're we are intending to have um, our own dedicated hydrogen pipelines. We're not in, in planning uh, to inject hydrogen into the natural gas system. Uh, personally, I think there are some big advantages to that, but. There there are lots of issues, um, one of which is utilities are slow to adopt anything. Um, They've been studying hydrogen in natural gas pipelines for at least 25 years. We used to have hydrogen in pipelines. um, Before there was natural gas, there was city gas, which was made from combining coal coal and steam. And it was mostly carbon monoxide, which is why in old movies people put their... P- took out the pilot lamps in their ovens and put their heads in the ovens and commit suicide. <laughs> That's because that was the old gas. Well, that old gas, uh, which was in our systems until the 1950s, was um, up to 30% hydrogen. And, and Hawaii has a system that has about 30% hydrogen in it uh, as well. But we're, we're not we're not looking at that. It's just... Uh, and the other thing is the there's environmental folks who are just bound and determined that this hydrogen thing is just a plot by the natural gas industry so yeah. we're trying not to have anything to do with the natural gas people it isn't it, it isn't keeping us from right. criticism but we're trying now we're, we're going to be frenemies
1: with the, with the natural yeah. gas sector one, one way or the other let me ask you this because you know you go back you mentioned that pipeline companies have been you know toying with this for 25 30 years uh you know, a lot of uh, discussion. I've been with Peterson three and a half years. When I, when I joined Peterson, you didn't even hear the word hydrogen. And now it's very vague. And, you know, Caterpillar's got a huge hydrogen development program and a lot of interest in hydrogen. Um, hydrogen's been out there for a long time. I mean, to my point, Caterpillar's got this big program. But you go back and we've been burning hydrogen blends and reciprocating engines for over 30 years. 40 years we've been utilizing hydrogen. So there's a huge body of work over the last few decades that, have, that has been done w- with hydrogen. Why now? Why is hydrogen so popular now, and why is there such a focus on it? Oh, that that's,
2: such a, that's such a great question. And, and it's not, in my view, not often answered very well. So um, two things uh, have made this now. There's okay. a great book by um, a guy by the name of Rom, R-O-M-M, The Hype About Hydrogen, Why Hydrogen is Such a Bad Idea, um, this hydrogen economy thing. And I read that book before I started the Renewable Hydrogen Alliance. I, oh, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's right. But no, hydrogen now makes sense. Why? Two things. One is the drive to decarbonize. If we've got to get carbon emissions down, and I believe we absolutely do have to, um, you you need some other source of electricity than fossil fuels. And the lowest cost source of low carbon energy, electric energy, is wind and solar. Well, wind and solar are variable resources. So if you're going to meet your average load with a resource with uh, what they call a uh, capacity factor of around 30%, it means on average, you know, if your load's 100 and you, um, you're trying to meet it with something that's going sometimes zero, sometimes um, a lot, but you need an average of 100, well, you're going to have to install 300. Mm-hmm in order to get an average of 100. Well, that means there are going to be times when you have three times as much energy available from the wind and solar than you have demand for. What are you going to do? And that's what I saw Europe responding to um, as they were ahead of us in penetration of renewables, and they had a lot more surpluses. So um, hydrogen electrolysis is a controllable load, that can be turned on when the surplus is available. Now, people argue, we don't have surpluses that many hours of the year and that many megawatt hours, and that's right today. We but will. We're, that we're, number start is going to increase, I don't know if exponentially is the right word, but really dramatically. It's not a linear thing. We're about In the Northwest, we have about 11% wind and solar. When we get to 20, 25 percent, the uh, the amount of curtailments where you just have to turn off the renewables because there's no market for it, is is just going to be, you know, probably ten times what it is today, and that's what they saw
1: in Europe. Yeah, according to the EIA, the Energy Information Administration, that we've quoted on this program before, but the EIA is projecting that 50 percent of capacity additions this year in the United States will be solar.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, and so we're, we're, we're just at the beginning of this. I mean, you know, I, I, I say, you know, a lot of bad ideas come out of California. We kind of leave the world in bad ideas. But we leave the world with good <laughs> ideas, too. We're, we're ahead of this in California. We're seeing these problems right now. And, you know, electricity until the advent of storage, which is absent pump storage, is, is, is relatively recent. We've had those discussions, but it had to be produced and consumed in real time. And it's very, very difficult to do that with these intermittent resources. So there has to be a storage medium.
2: And then the other side of that coin, is the side of the coin people normally think of is, what do you do when there's no wind and solar? And what you're going to do is what we do today. I'm absolutely convinced. You're going to run combustion turbines. But those combustion turbines don't have to run on fossil fuels. They can run on hydrogen or hydrogen derivatives. They can, look, they can run on carbon-neutral fuels, and they'll have to. If you look at the cost of... Filling in those times when there just isn't enough wind and solar with batteries or pumped hydro, uh, you you find that it's going to cost you multiples of the capital investment in the wind and solar to reach 100%, just to cover a few weeks of low output in the winter. Um, It's and if you try to do it with pumped hydro, you have not only the cost problem, which is similar to batteries but there's no way to cite the quantity of pumped hydro that you would need it right. just is not feasible economically or environmentally to do that with hydrogen it, it it's very easy and lower much lower cost so it'll be a fraction of the cost of the installed renewables
1: not a multiple and i think people need what what people really need to be cognizant of and appreciate is you know our infrastructure, we've, you know, it's, it took over a hundred years to develop and build the infrastructure we have right now for our industrial complex and our transportation complex. And it's not going to happen overnight. You know, the replacement's not going to happen overnight. But going back to where we started this, the, the Obsidian Pacific Northwest uh, Hydrogen Hub uh, is an opportunity to start. And it's an opportunity to societally lead by example to show responsible development, what's possible. And I think, you know, in reading your pre-application, I think where you guys are going is you're really trying to uh, not only put $10 billion of infrastructure in place in the Pacific Northwest, but to create a model that's replicable elsewhere um, as a a guideline for how, as a nation, we, we build out hydrogen infrastructure.
2: I think that's right, um, and you mentioned it earlier. Our our CEO David is is absolutely brilliant, and he's he's leading the way. I, I thought I was a pretty creative guy until um, I met David.
1: <laughs> yeah, David just a uh, just a magnetic personality. Just a brilliant guy, and I, I, I really love chatting with. Him. We had some email exchanges yesterday that I'm still kind of thinking about. So, uh, yeah, I just uh, really appreciate appreciate Obsidian Renewables. Appreciate all you guys. Uh, want to thank you guys uh today for uh spending some time with us uh, as we as we close up here any 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 last thoughts uh abe as, as we uh, as we shut down this episode of power talk
3: yeah I, I would actually I appreciate the kudos on the infrastructure that we are trying to create but I also just wanted to hit on the infrastructure we we don't have to create at least at least not right now um transmission's been hit on a few times uh, in this Podcast, but it's interesting to me that we can use hydrogen to move energy uh, when transmission is available, right? So the, the big transmission problem is is finding transmission um, that connects load centers to renewable energy, right? But the interesting thing is that that problem, that 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 capacity problem, it happens during you know at five o'clock in the afternoon, for example, mm-hmm. during peak times. And one of the things that I'm learning most recently here at Obsidian Renewables is is at nighttime, for example, there's actually a lot of transmission available. Right. So part, one of our plans is to move energy when transmission is available. We make hydrogen on the other end, preferably at the uh, place it's needed, at the load center, and then we can use it there, whether we use it for a transmission fuel, or, sorry, transportation fuel, or whether we use it to, to power a, a gas turbine. Uh, we think we can utilize some of the ex- existing uh, infrastructure to to bring green energy uh, renewables to load centers. So I think that's kind of an exciting development.
2: And and there's an analogous um, uh, issue on the um, hydrogen for transportation side because uh, hydrogen allows you a time shift. So you can fuel your car with hydrogen when that is produced when the renewables are available and doesn't have to be delivered, you know, the renewables don't have to be generated when the car is plugged in and recharging. So yep. for a ba- battery, you you have to have the renewables there whenever whoever wants to charge it wants to charge it with the hydrogen, you have the ability to time shift, and that's a huge advantage uh, and reduces the infrastructure burden.
1: Storage. And it's analogous when you're filling your car with hydrogen. It's analogous to filling your car with gasoline. I mean, yes, yeah. it's, it's quick. It's minutes. It's not... Mm-hmm. it's yeah. on hours, like like we have with the charging structure down any, any last thoughts Ken, as, as we wrap up here i just want to thank you for doing this and
2: giving us this platform we're very excited about it i would say a lot of people look at our sort of 10 billion dollar infrastructure plan and are awed by its audacity and and i used to call it a pretty big idea but you know i, I I'm an old hydro resources guy and the story of building out the hydro system uh, is a story of much greater boldness that really the Northwest uh, economy grew up on low cost zero carbon um, hydropower. Um, And what we're doing, what we're proposing to do is a significant step in the right direction but it's not even as bold as what we've done in the past. And my theory is that we've, our generation, uh, just hasn't seen the kind of infrastructure development that has happened in generations before us, like the development mm-hmm. of the interstate highway system, and and we've forgotten what it is to do needed large-scale infrastructure projects, and we need to remember because we need it now. That's great,
0: Nate. Really appreciate speaking with you both. Um, i'm gonna I'm gonna link this uh, concept paper. I think if folks want to hear like the optimism piece. Uh, page eleven has a great table. and if you look under that uh, column labeled description, uh, you really see some some great benefits that can come to the folks, not only around the pipeline, but more broadly.
1: Uh, yeah appreciate it again you guys having us in let's also link the uh, city renewables website there's a lot of information on the website uh, about this project and city renewables I think our, our listeners will be interested uh, these guys are, are they're out there leading and uh, we're uh, we're delighted to uh, have a relationship with you guys and we appreciate all the opportunity that you're creating for our customers and uh, hopefully ultimately for Peterson uh, projects we do you make a lot of earth moving equipment? It's going to help lay that pipe. And, uh, <laughs> Excellent. Our, our reciprocating engines burning uh, 100% hydrogen, I think, are, uh, are we're going to see a lot of uh, activity over the next uh, decade or so here in Pacific Northwest. So thanks again. Uh, let's get back to work and let's put this episode of Power Talk in the can.
0: All right. Thank you for listening.